As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy God, the scriptures tell us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word endures forever. May this word be a fresh word for us today as we seek to be your faithful disciples. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Dr. Cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Carrie Egan is a hospice chaplain, which means she spends her work days listening to people who are dying. Before this, Carrie was a writer, having published a memoir after her father's death. Ten years after that book was published, she found herself sitting by the bedside of a woman named Gloria. You know, Gloria said, I always wish I could meet a writer and tell him my stories so other people could hear them and not make the same mistakes I made. I'd just give him my stories. I'd say, here, take them and tell them. And you know what crazy stories I've got. But I never did. I never did meet a writer. 
Carrie sat there slightly stunned, not sure whether she should tell Gloria that she was a writer. But Gloria kept talking, I used to pray for it all the time, that I might could meet someone, but I guess that prayer won't ever be answered now. I never even leave this house. I'm stuck here. How could I ever meet a real writer now? She looked at Carrie, shook her head, and smiled. I prayed and prayed and prayed. Some prayers just don't get answered, I suppose. Finally, Carrie couldn't keep silent any longer. Gloria, did I ever tell you that I was a writer? A real writer? Gloria looked shocked. Yes, Carrie said, but it was a long time ago. Like someone who wrote a book, Gloria asked. Yes, published and everything. At this, Gloria threw up her hands and looked at the ceiling. All this time I've been waiting for a man, she said. I thought my writer would be a man. Our assumptions and expectations, especially when they're unconscious, which they most often are, often prevent us from seeing what is right in front of our eyes. None of us, no matter how wise or old, educated or informed, are immune to this all-too-human tendency. And our tendency to make assumptions, to form expectations, may be most pronounced when it comes to the people we know or think we know best, which is why those closest to us are often the ones with the greatest capacity to surprise us. In Luke's gospel, Jesus' public ministry begins with teaching in synagogues, first in the region of Galilee, in towns like Capernaum, and then in Nazareth, his hometown. In that time, synagogues served not just as places of worship, but as schools, community centers, even courthouses. On the Sabbath day, people would gather together to hear the scriptures, as we say, read and proclaimed. But the services would have been led not by trained clergy or priests, but by any adult male who was willing to stand up and read and comment on Scripture. In that sense, what Jesus does in this story, getting up and reading Scripture on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, isn't at all out of the ordinary. But something about him made people take notice. Maybe his reputation from his time in Galilee had spread all the way to Nazareth, Their hometown boy was making a name for himself, and his hometown crowd was excited to see him in person. He must have been a captivating public speaker because no one could take their eyes off him. And then, for the first time in Luke's gospel, Jesus speaks. Today, he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we might think it's that comment that gets Jesus in trouble and turns this crowd's amazement into rage. Was Jesus actually claiming to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of God's people? But actually, at this point, the people are still looking at Jesus with pride and amazement. It hasn't turned yet to anger until, until he asks them to consider that their scriptures might just mean exactly what they say. 
that God loves others as much as God loves them. Like Carrie Egan, Catherine Schultz wrote a memoir after the death of her father. It's called Lost and Found. In it, she unpacks the meaning of these words, how we use the concept of lost to describe many things, not just objects that have gone missing, but far more impactful disappearances, lost jobs, lost loved ones, lost confidence, lost minds. The same is true with the idea of found. We find objects, yes, but we also say we find love. Schultz then devotes a whole section of her book to the word that connects these two, and. In a recent article, she reflects on this farther, particularly how we use and to calibrate and contextualize our experiences, because our lived experience is so rarely one thing or another, black or white, either or A pandemic forces us to make unwelcome and unwanted changes in our lives, and it gives us an opportunity to slow down and reflect on what matters. You get your dream job, and it requires moving your family across the country. You endure an acrimonious divorce from a person you've come to wish you never met, And you adore the children you and this person had together. You love your extended family, and you cannot fathom how they hold the political opinions they do. Jesus shows up in Nazareth with a firm grasp on the concept of and. These are his people the one who knew him as a child, who looked out for him, who taught him and disciplined him and watched him grow. And he has returned to them different, anointed in baptism, tested in the wilderness, his heart and mind expanded by those he has met in his travels, those he was once taught were different, other. Jesus has returned home and He is not just the child he once was. He is that child, and he is someone new, someone who has experienced the expansive, inclusive, unconditional love of God. Everyone else in that synagogue that day seems to have lost their grip on the complexities of and. They are comfortable with the Jesus they knew, The carpenter's son, that nerdy, quiet kid who always did seem so sensitive. Look at him now. He's really grown into himself so handsome and such a good public speaker. When the people look at each other in amazement at what their hometown kid has become, Jesus could have just smiled and nodded, spoken a word of blessing, and then left quietly. Instead, he stays and he challenges them, predicting and thus creating a backlash that quickly turns murderous. 
Now, we may not be so familiar with the stories about Elijah and Elisha Jesus references, but the crowd around him was. These are stories about how God's love is not confined to borders or bloodlines. God's love is all about the and. It is a connecting force that brings together the least, the lost, the less than, right alongside the insider, the prosperous, and the powerful. God's love is the and that creates true community. In August of 1963, from a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a response to eight Southern white religious leaders. In their statement, these leaders had questioned the methods of nonviolent action pursued by King and the groups with which he was aligned, asking why they didn't pursue negotiation instead. In his letter, King reminds them that nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to dramatize the issue so that it can no longer be ignored. He continues, This may sound rather shocking, but I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly worked and preached against violent tension, but there is a type of constructive, nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. We think of Jesus as one who brings healing, peace, reconciliation, truth. But there is an and to Jesus, because in addition to comfort, Jesus brings tension, constructive, creative tension. And if we resist or ignore the way Jesus challenges us and makes us uncomfortable, we will fail to create true community. For his hometown crowd, Jesus creates tension simply by referencing two well-known stories of their sacred scriptures, stories that speak of the wideness of God's love, how God includes all people, how God insists on that community-creating and Jesus' suggestion that these stories might just be true, not in the distant past, but today, makes that crowd lose their minds. It makes them want to kill him, and they usher him right out of the synagogue beyond the boundaries of their town to the edge of a cliff where Jesus' ministry almost ends before it has really begun. We know what the edge of that cliff feels like. We know how all-consuming it can be to get caught up in our assumptions and expectations and opinions and anger about how things are and what needs to change and which people we accept and which ones we condemn. We are specialists in polarization, especially when we forget that the only way forward to true community 
at least as far as our faith is concerned, is to lean into God's and. It is this and that creates the constructive, creative tension we need for growth. This and brings together and holds together God's community, a community characterized by radical inclusion, inclusion that does not repress or deny our differences, but which acknowledges and accepts them. Today is our annual meeting Sunday. It's a time when we reflect on how, who we are, and how we are defined by God's radically inclusive and. What does that look like here? It looks like a place where people hold different political views and where we are willing to talk about them with curiosity and respect. It looks like a place where our leaders express contrasting perspectives and accept the decisions of the group. It looks like people longing for a return to normal and accepting that things will never quite be the same. It looks like people holding each other accountable for our mistakes and always, always extending grace and forgiveness. It looks like meeting the needs of those within our community and sacrificing our needs for the sake of our neighbors. There is nothing easy about any of this work of creating and maintaining a community defined by God's and. And this is the task to which Jesus calls us. For the crowd at the synagogue that day, the and that confronted them was that Jesus was the boy they once knew and the one who would fulfill the promise of Scripture. It was that their Scriptures offered them comfort and provoked creative, constructive tension. It was that they were polite, rule-following churchgoers and capable of murderous rage. Fortunately, the story ends with a miracle. At the edge of a cliff, threatened by the rage of the angry mob, Jesus passes through the midst of them and goes on his way. This is no happy resolution, but can't you just imagine that moment When the crowd realizes Jesus is gone, when they stand there blinking like those awakened from a trance, don't we know, too, what it feels like to have given up hope that our prayers would ever be answered, but then to discover, to our great astonishment, that the answer to our prayers was here all along, it is all of us together and Jesus in our midst. Amen.